Turn to Mark chapter 8, if you could, Mark chapter 8. And we are transitioning from John 14, and we are transitioning now into the summer sermon series. And as Nathan just prayed, the summer sermon series, the theme for this year has been building a culture of discipleship, building a culture of discipleship. And we have very early on in this year defined that term discipleship for us. We're all on the same page. And we've defined that term this way. Discipleship is life-on-life ministry that personally values and applies God's word first to yourself and then intentionally and selflessly devotes yourself to others for their spiritual growth. It's on the screen, I'll say it again. Discipleship is a life-on-life ministry that personally values and applies God's word first to yourself and then intentionally and selflessly devotes yourself to others for their spiritual growth. We could simplify it and put it this way. Discipleship is God's people loving God's word and then giving themselves to each other. And our desire as elders and ministry leaders, directors, is that this kind of selfless, intentional, life-on-life discipleship will become a part of our culture here at EBC. We're not looking for this to be a flash in the pan ministry. That's easy. We're not looking for this to be another church program that you just do. We're not even looking for this to be a 2022 theme and then we just move on to something else next year, forget all that we learned this year. Our desire is that discipleship would become a part of our DNA, who we are as a church. This would spread, permeate from our equipping classes to our neighborhood groups, to even our times here in worship together, to who we are outside of these walls when we leave outside of the formal church events, that each of us would devote ourselves to God's word. We wouldn't stop there, though. That's the easy part, isn't it? We don't stop there, no. We then give ourselves to one another for their spiritual growth. And already throughout this year, we have had sermons preached on this discipleship theme had a discipleship training seminar. It's meant to equip us. We'll have another one of those later. We've begun to match people up in those discipling relationships. Some are in one-on-one, some are in groups. So we're on our way to building this culture, but it leads now to this sermon series where we want to, from a pastoral perspective, we want to ingrain, hopefully, in us Not only our need, our need for discipleship, but also our calling, disciple others. And so we begin where we must begin in Mark chapter 8. We're looking at verses 34 through 38 because here is where we find Jesus' call to discipleship. But I want you to mark this. Mark chapter 8 does not, it is not, a call to disciple others. Jesus will get there. In fact, in Matthew 28, before he ascends, he will make this command, go and make disciples, disciple others. 
It's evangelism to sanctification. And Nathan will develop that commission for discipleship next week. But here in Mark 8, Jesus' call to discipleship is different. Again, this is not a call to disciple others. This is a call to become his disciple, to learn from him, to follow him, to submit to him. And we must begin here if we're looking at discipleship because before you can ever disciple someone else, you must first be a disciple of Jesus. That's simple. And Jesus' point in this passage, in this discipleship call, is that being his disciple will cost you greatly. In fact, being his disciple will cost you everything. Read the text, start in verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, that's discipleship language, so just keep that in mind. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. You can stop there. From the very start here, you can see this is not the typical 21st century gospel call. This is not the typical, Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. This is not, give Jesus a try. Just give him a try. This is a gospel that has cost involved. There's demands here. Really, you can summarize it. This is a call to repentance. It's weighty, it's pointed. Jesus here is calling for an exclusive commitment to him as a discipler. He's our leader, he's our master, he's our Lord. Look at verse 34. He summoned, it's gonna indicate now the gravity of what's coming. Notice though who Jesus summons. He summoned the crowd, It's key, summoned the crowd. And so what follows is not a call for a second level of Christianity. This is not something you do years after you come to Christ initially in salvation. There's unbelievers surrounding Christ right now. And the call here are these conditions for salvation. The gospel is Christ comes from heaven to earth. Christ lives that perfect life. He dies that sacrificial death. He rises again from the dead. He comes back in power and glory. That's the gospel. But there's a gospel call. And here, these are the conditions of this call. In fact, notice verse 34 right in the middle. If anyone broadening it out 
anyone in this crowd, anyone in any age, if anyone wishes to come after me, be associated with me, be linked and united to me and my cross and my gospel and my return, here's the requirements. Look at verse 36. These are the costs. If you do not accept them, you will forfeit your soul. It's the eternal life language. This is for the crowd. Notice also, though, he also summons his disciples. His disciples. And this, too, is key. Why? Look back at verse 29. Verse 29. This is where Peter... On behalf of the 12, Peter makes that great confession of Jesus. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the King. You're the one we've been waiting for. You are the Messiah. It's a confession of faith. But now, here's the transition. Only moments later, Jesus now summons the crowd with his disciples, those who have made this confession, and in effect, Jesus is saying, a true follower of me, a true disciple of mine, does not only make a great confession with the mouth, no, true disciples couple that great confession with now a great commitment. Specifically, the commitment of self-denial, deny yourself, bear your cross, and follow Christ in a life dedicated to obedience and submission. So connect verse 29 with this call. According to Jesus, a mere confession of Christ proves nothing. Nothing. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, proves nothing. A mere confession saves no one. Again, back to verse 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, put it in these terms, if you want to be my disciple... If you want to be forgiven of your sin, if you want to be saved from God's wrath, redeemed, reconciled, if anyone wishes to have an eternity with me in joy forever, he must, divine necessity, he must, he must count and assume the cost. And again, notice those eternal consequences drop down to verse 38. If one does not obey Jesus' gospel call here, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, what words, Jesus, specifically the words he just spoke? If you're ashamed of his words of discipleship, this call, the warning is the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels, and that's a reference to judgment there. If you don't accept this call, there'll be shame, not salvation. There'll be judgment, not joy. So understand the magnitude of what Jesus is saying. Now bring this back to that main point we started with. Before you can ever disciple others, you must first be a disciple of Jesus. Assume these costs. That is the culture we long to see here at EBC, that men, women, teens, even children 
are not ashamed of Christ and his call to follow him. That's what we wanted to see. We wanted to see folks who have weighed the cost of being Christ's disciple and have determined that it is indeed worth the cost. Who then link, so the links of discipleship, who then link Jesus' call to follow him in Mark 8 with Jesus' commission in Mark 28 to go and make disciples. We come under Jesus' lordship and then we give ourselves away for the spiritual growth of others. This is selflessness. So two chains in this link. Disciples of Christ make disciples for Christ. Disciples of Christ make disciples for Christ. That's our calling. That's the culture we long to see. And the culture starts with each and every one of us. It does not start with a program. It doesn't start from top down. The culture of discipleship starts when each and every one of us counts the cost of following Christ and then lives that. And there's three costs here. Three costs that Jesus puts up front if we are gonna come to him in saving faith. Again, that's that first link in this chain of discipleship. Be a disciple of Christ. Let's begin with cost number one. Cost number one, a disciple of Jesus loves Christ more than he loves himself. Disciple of Christ loves him more than he loves himself. It's verse 34, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must, again, divine imperative, deny himself. Well, you can't get much more penetrating than this. So Jesus is targeting our greatest affections. And what is our greatest affection? What is it? Our love for who? Ourselves. Like it or not, we love ourselves far too much. Far too much. And the word deny here literally means to sever the relationship, to completely disown. It's actually a strengthened form of the verb. There's an emphasis here, a weightiness. This is complete disassociation from. And the verb's in the aorist tense, meaning that Jesus is calling for a decisive act, an immediate response. Could translate, he must, even this way, do this now. This is not this drawn out process. Make a decisive yes, a decisive no. Put it in Old Testament words. Choose this day what? Who you will serve. In this case, choose this day who you will follow. And notice what Jesus calls a sinner to completely disassociate from. It is himself. He must deny himself. This is unbelievable. This is unheard of. This is impossible even. It'd be so much easier if Jesus called for a temporary self-denial, right? Temporary self-denial. Deny yourself of, of maybe luxuries for a time. Deny yourself from pleasures for a time. Or at least... In New England, the Lent-like self-denial, this was the classic in New England, deny yourself from chocolate for two weeks. This is what everybody chose, chocolate. Uh, That's not the command. 
No, this command strikes much deeper. Deny the very core of who you are. The very core of who you are. Deny your identity. Deny your autonomy. Deny your goals and your dreams and your interests and your motives. Christ is calling for the sinner to abandon himself. To no longer make himself the object, the goal of his life. We love ourselves too much. And so Christ is calling for nothing less than a fundamental reorientation of everything about us. They're shocking words. Shocking words. So coming to Christ in faith is not having your felt needs met. Coming to Christ in faith is not getting what you want. Coming to Christ in faith is not about Jesus being the frosting on the cake of an already successful life. Coming to Jesus in faith is not about Jesus being an addition to who you are. No, to the contrary, the gospel requires you to submit yourself to Christ as master, king, discipler of your life. Now, the sinful tendency, the sinful tendency of every fallen sinner is to claim leadership over our own lives, right? We want to be in charge. We want to be the king of our own domain. We want to be in control of our actions and control of our destiny. How different Jesus' words are. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, if you want to save your soul... And you must embrace me, Jesus says, as the final authority of your life. Now, this is built on in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes this, Galatians 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. I've denied myself. It's no longer I who live. I've relinquished my autonomy, my control, but now Christ who lives in me. It's another way to put it. Or think of Philippians chapter one. For to me, the true believer, for to me, to live is who? To live is Christ. We follow Christ. We live for Christ. In Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, verse 24 you have this statement from Paul, 2024. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. I've denied myself. So it's all built on Jesus' words. And as we consider this discipleship call, we must ask ourselves this question. You can ask yourself what, better who, are we living for? Who are we living for? You could even turn Philippians 1.21 into a personal question. For to me, to live is what? And you fill in the blank. For me to live is what? What's my goal? Who's my Lord? For me to live is, is blank. You fill in the blank. And that answer will show your heart it will reveal your greatest love. 
Take an inventory. Is it truly Christ? Is it truly the glory of our Savior? Now, turn the page in your Bible to Mark chapter 10. We are given an example of this kind of call to salvation, this call to discipleship, Mark chapter 10. Starts in verse 17, Jesus calling someone to follow him in faith, Mark 10, 17, as he, speaking of Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is the opportunity we're all waiting for, isn't it? Someone runs up to you and says, please tell me, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Low-hanging fruit here. And you can see the, the heart, at least on the surface, of this man. He runs up to Jesus, and so he sees that there's an earnestness to his question. There's a gravity here. He's looking for answers he can't find on his own. He calls Jesus a good teacher. That's a formal address to a Jewish rabbi. So there's great admiration He kneels down before Jesus. That's profound respect. He's acknowledging Jesus' superiority. He verbalizes his desire to inherit eternal life. He's a good prospect, right? Good prospect for the gospel. So how will Jesus respond? What will Jesus say? Notice verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. This is the love that God has for the lost. But notice in love, the emphasis is there on love, in love, Jesus makes sure this man knows the cost involved. This is a loving thing. In love, Jesus will not soft sell his gospel. And so he says, one thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor. And now watch, you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The call to eternal life, want to inherit eternal life, the call to eternal life, Jesus now turns into a call to follow him, follow him as a disciple. And I don't know about you, but at this point, here's my temptation. My temptation is this, Jesus, um, Do you even understand the gospel call? Uh, Jesus, you got it all wrong. Because what would we say? What would we say if somebody says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's our answer. You must what? Starts with a B, rhymes with believe. You must believe. Believe. Salvation is by faith alone. It's not by giving to the poor Jesus. So what's Jesus doing here? Well, I think we can be safe to say Jesus is not teaching that this man could buy his way into heaven. No, rather, Jesus is probing this man's desire for eternal life. This comes right on the heels of Mark chapter eight. This is Jesus unmasking this man's 
heart. This is Jesus exposing this man's greatest love. This is Jesus in different words. This is Jesus calling this man to deny himself. Deny yourself as the master of your life. Deny the security you find in your wealth and turn to me as the one who owns all of you. All of you. And submit to me as my disciple. And do this no matter the cost, even if it costs you everything. Submit to me as my disciple, no matter the cost. This is just simply Mark 8, 37. It's worth the cost. You can gain the entire world. This man had gained the entire world. He's about to lose his soul. And then that statement in verse 21, you will have treasure in heaven. It's the greatest investment you can make. Now verse 22, but, and it's that one word you don't want to read at this point. But, at these words he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. He was unwilling to give it all up for Christ. He was unwilling to follow Jesus as his disciple. He was unwilling to trust Jesus for everything. He was unwilling, put in Mark 8, he was unwilling to deny himself, to deny his autonomy, his identity, his hopes, his loves, his control, his authority. He wanted eternal life for sure. He wanted salvation, definitely, but he wanted it on his terms under his control. And he deemed the cost was just too high and thus he left a void of eternal life. So being a disciple of Jesus involves knowingly holding nothing of yourself back from him. And this is where a culture of discipleship begins. Again, it's not joining a discipleship group. That's not where it begins. It's not getting paired up with someone. The culture of discipleship begins with each of us relinquishing control over our lives to Christ and loving Christ more than we love ourselves. That's the first cost, notice the second. Back to Mark 8, cost number two. A disciple of Jesus loves Christ more than he loves his life. He loves Christ more than he loves his life. Not only himself, but his very existence. If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross. This brings now self-denial to an entirely different level. Not only does Christ require anyone who would come after him for salvation to love him more than their own hopes, their own dreams, but now Jesus says all who come to him must love him more than their own earthly existence. Again, imperative, aorist imperative, decisive act. Jesus is calling for an immediate response. 
Not only does a true believer survey the wondrous cross and glory in the cross and celebrate the cross and rest fully in the cross, but a true believer carries a cross. He must take up his cross. And for the first century Jew, the first century Jew, just put yourselves in the minds of the crowd that Jesus is speaking to. This kind of language meant only one thing, one thing. Taking up your own cross meant you were prepared to die. To the Jewish crowd, taking up a cross was a picture of a convicted criminal carrying the very crossbar he would be nailed to and hung from and walking that down the road to the place of his own execution. That's the picture. It's a picture that Jesus has in mind here. The cross was the first electric chair. Think about it in those terms. Again, the weightiness, the severity The Jews lived under the rule of Rome at this point. Crucifixion in that century was the execution of choice for the Romans. Why? Because it sent a graphic and torturous message. If you want to take your stand against us, you'll end up there on the cross. Just 30 years previous, a Roman prefect named Quintilius Verus, he crucified 2,000 Jews. 2,000 Jews, he lined them up, on crosses spanning 50 miles from Galilee to Jerusalem, and many of, the G- of Jesus' hearers here would have seen those crosses. A century before this time, Alexander Janius crucified 800 Jewish rebels in Jerusalem. Historians estimate that in Jesus' lifetime, 30,000 people were crucified. In Jesus' lifetime. So when Jesus says you need to take up your cross, that's the picture. One commentator said and translated it this way, you must take up your own execution stake and you must be willing to carry it to your own death on my behalf. And this is not just an isolated call, Luke chapter 14, now large crowds were going along with him and Jesus turned and said to them, again, the crowds are there. This is an evangelistic call. If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own life, you must love me more than you love your life. He cannot be my disciple. And then this statement, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's an impossibility. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus puts it this way, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And so when Jesus calls you to follow him, he sets his sights on your deepest affections. He asks, where is your greatest love? To what extent do you love me more than your earthly life? To what extent? More than your temporal security? And you can understand why Jesus is doing this. He's separating the admirers from the true disciples, the true believers. Jesus knows full well there is superficial faith and there is saving faith. 
Luke adds, Jesus saying this, Luke 9, you must be willing to take up your cross daily. Daily, so it's a way of life. Take up your cross daily. Now make the connection to what Jesus has just said. Look at verse 31. This again comes on the heels of Peter's great confession. You are the Christ. But notice how Jesus follows that confession up. He tells his apostles that he's going to be rejected and he's going to suffer and he's going to be killed. Verse 31. Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. In verse 34, we must deny ourselves. Here now we must, or Christ must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. So now Jesus ups the ante for them. And he says, if you want my salvation, if you want to come after me, then you must be willing to experience that same fate yourself. Do you love your temporal security more than me? Thomas Akempis wrote this. This dates back to the 1400s. Classic quote, needs to be heard today. Jesus today has many who love his heavenly kingdom, but few who carry his cross. Many who yearn for comfort, few who long for distress. Plenty of people he finds share his banquet, few to share his fast. Everyone desires to take part in his rejoicing, but few are willing to suffer anything for his sake. There are many that follow Jesus as far as the breaking of bread, few as far as the drinking of the cup of suffering. Many that revere his morality, few that follow him in the indignation of the cross, many that love Jesus as long as nothing runs counter to them. Many that praise and bless him as long as they receive comfort from him. Those who love Jesus for his own sake, not for the sake of their own comfort, bless him in time of trouble and heartache as much as when they are full of comfort. That could have been written today. So let's bring it back to then Paul's statement, Philippians chapter one. Philippians 1, 21. Paul's gonna combine self-denial and cross-bearing. All right, 121, for to me, to live is Christ. That's self-denial. But we know how Paul finishes this. He then adds, and to die is what? To die is gain. That's cross-bearing. For me to live is Christ. He's my authority. He's my goal. And I will love him even if it costs me everything. And again, this is where that culture of discipleship begins with each of us counting these costs and deeming them worth the cost. Number three, cost number three. Third cost of discipleship. A disciple of Jesus loves Christ more than he loves his sin. A disciple of Jesus loves Christ more than he loves his sin. If anyone would come after me, he must. Last demand, follow me. Follow me. Present tense now. 
Present tense, this is permanent, this is ongoing. We follow Christ, leadership as a pattern of life. The imagery is plain. You have the children's game, follow the leader, or, or Simon says, or the game I like to play, Sliman says, right? There's one rule. There's one rule. You only go and you do whatever the leader tells you to do. It's a one rule. In this case, we walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. We follow him. We love what Jesus loves. We hate what Jesus hates. Our will is Christ's will. We hate sin, we love righteousness. That's the call. We follow our leader, our leader who knew no sin. Our leader whose righteousness is the belt about his loins, Isaiah 11. Our leader whose food is to do the Father's will. And so to love Christ more than our own sin means the question on our mind must be this, how can I obey him? How can I obey him? How can I put Christ on display? Is this bringing him glory and honor and testimony? It's the life of repentance. Now, you don't have to turn there. But in John 14, <laughs> we saw this. If you love me, right? If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Or the flip side, he who does not love me does not keep my words. He doesn't follow me. This will be repeated in 1 John. By this, we know that we have come to know him. How? No, in a saving way. By what? By what? If we keep his commandments, if we follow him. The world is passing away in all of its lust, but the one who does the will of the Father, he lives forever. Mark 3, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. He's in my family. To quote J.C. Ryle, all who accept this great salvation must prove the reality of their faith by carrying the cross after Christ. They must not think to enter heaven without trouble, pain, suffering, and conflict on earth. The cross of holding a faith which the world despises and the cross of living a life which the world ridicules. They must be willing to crucify the flesh, to mortify the deeds of the body. That's the life of repentance. To come out from the world and to lose their lives, if needful, for Christ's sake and the gospels. If we will not carry the cross, we shall never wear the crown. Let us often ask ourselves whether our Christianity costs us anything. Does it entail any sacrifice? Has it the true stamp of heaven? Does it carry with it any cost? Why? Because if not we may well tremble and be afraid. We have everything to learn. A salvation which costs nothing is worth nothing. It will do us no good in the life that is now. It will lead to no salvation in the life to come. 
And this, to follow Christ, follow me, that's the goal of discipleship, isn't it? To be molded more and more into the image of Jesus. It's the third cost. Disciples of Jesus love Christ more than their sin. Now, here's my conclusion to all of this because it's a question that you are asking right now. Here's your question. If this is the gospel call, then how can anyone be saved? Right? If this is the gospel call, then how can anyone be saved? Because the costs are just too high. The call is just too demanding. No one, no one can respond to Christ in this way. And I would say you're right to a point. Because in and of ourselves, sinful man cannot muster up this kind of commitment. That is an impossibility. But that's by design. No one can come to Christ in saving faith. No one can truly accept these costs unless, unless there is a supernatural change that takes place on the inside. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who must give us a heart that wants to do this. Submitting to Jesus' call of self-denial, cross-bearing, life-following, that is not feasible unless 2 Corinthians chapter 4 happens. God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, that's creation, first miracle. This is now going to be the miracle of new creation, that same God must now shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That miracle must take place. And then we have a heart that loves Christ and longs to obey Christ and follows Christ. The Spirit must give us new eyes, new longings, new loves, and new heart. Because when the Spirit does, we will be overwhelmed by the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, and we will count the cost and it will be worth it all. Christ is worth the cost. So Jesus' commands here, again, deny yourselves, take up your cross, follow him. Those are the tangible, those are the visible marks the visible marks of God's supernatural working in our life that he has indeed given us that new heart. He has given us that saving faith. He has given us repentance. But for us who have been given that new heart, for us who have counted this cost of discipleship, we've deemed that following Christ is worth it, what should be our response to our Lord? What should be our response It's to follow him. It's to do what our leader does and says. Our response is wrapped up in Matthew 28. Go and what? And make disciples. Personally value and apply God's word to yourself and then intentionally and selflessly give yourself away for the spiritual growth of others. The two links in this chain of discipleship. Disciples of Christ make disciples for Christ. And that is where Nathan will pick it up for us next week. Father, you have given us a tremendous call.
through your son to come to him in saving faith. And Lord, as we look back on our own lives, we, we can see where we fail you. And we can see where our loves for other things have overtaken perhaps our love for your glory, for our Savior. We have not weeded those out in our hearts. We've become very comfortable, comfortable in our temporal security, in our own comfort. I pray that your spirit would bring that needed sanctifying conviction to each of us, and that we would love Christ supremely, preeminently, and then we, we would follow him. We'd follow him in loving one another. We wouldn't be that isolated island unto ourselves. But loving one another for their spiritual growth. Create these desires within us here. And we bring you the praise and the honor. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.